Well, this week we discovered there's only one thing better than a long weekend, and that's a public holiday on a Tuesday, which creates the possibility of a very long weekend. I won't ask for a show of hands to see who indulged. Um, the weekend has quite an interesting history to it, actually. Taking Sunday off as the day of rest, one day out of seven, goes all the way back to the Emperor Constantine, somewhere around the year uh, 361 AD. However, the concept of the two-day weekend uh, is, is relatively new. It only goes back as far as the early 19th century and to uh, industrial uh, Britain. And the whole point uh, was that employers thought there'd be a benefit in, in allowing employees two days off every week, which would mean that they would be able to turn up to work on Monday morning, not only refreshed, but sober. So that was the birth of the weekend. And of course, as a consequence to that, um, in the popular imagination, and certainly in the Australian imagination, uh, the idea of a weekend has overtaken any biblical concept of Sabbath. And in fact, a Christian understanding of rest has now been exchanged for the secular notion of leisure. Leisure has become what Aussies are all about. And it's, to, to us, it's the central component of what we think of as a flourishing life. And leisure is all about escaping from the drudgery of work and getting on with the excitement of play. The problem with leisure, though, is it's ultimately centred around the self. So it's about me, me making the most, time of my, uh, the, the most of my time, the most of my uh, resources. It's about me maximising my enjoyment. It's about me finding a fulfilling life. Well, Sabbath is very different to that. Biblical Sabbath contains leisure, it involves leisure, but leisure is not the ultimate goal, the ultimate good of Sabbath. So Sabbath rest and weekend, they're not the same thing. Now I should clear up from the start that the New Testament lays no requirement on the church to keep the fourth, Sabbath, uh, keep the fourth commandment and observe any Sabbath day. Um, and, and much less requires that we engage in arguments about which day of the week is properly the Sabbath day. Um, but in the New Testament, though, what we find is that the work of Jesus is strongly informed by the Old Testament notion of Sabbath. Well, we're coming today to Psalm 92. This is the only one of the Psalms that's especially designated as a psalm for the Sabbath. That little superscription on the top of the psalm, that little title, which we don't normally read, and some English translations don't even bother translating, um, that little superscription at the top may not have been written by the original author. There's debate about that. But even if it wasn't, even if it was added later, it is evidence that from very early on, in, in the worshipping life of God's people, this psalm assumed importance as a psalm especially for the Sabbath day. And if that's the case, we should then expect that this song of thanksgiving uh, is a reliable guide in some way to the practice of Sabbath keeping. So it's not simply as a, as a song that we would sing especially on the Sabbath day, but as a prayer that plants our feet very firmly in the reality 
of God-ordained rest that then shapes the whole week. And so, as a Sabbath psalm, we should expect Psalm 92 to inoculate us against um, a foolish way of living, an ignorant way of living. We should expect it to be a prayer that trains us in the way of living with our eyes and our ears open to what God is doing in the world, to God's work. So before we say anything about Psalm 92, we better say a few things about the biblical or a biblical theology of Sabbath. As I mentioned before, Sabbath is the fourth of the Ten Commandments, and it runs like this. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labour and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. Well, Moses recited the Ten Commandments uh, on two different occasions in two different places. The first time at Mount Sinai to the, the first generation of Israelites who came out of slavery in Egypt. But then he recites it a second time, 40 years later, to the second generation of Israelites, just before they go into the land of Canaan. And in these two places, on these two occasions, the Ten Commandments are almost identical, almost, except for the Fourth Commandment, the Sabbath Day Commandment. And in these two places, we get very different reasons from Moses as to why Israel should observe the commandment. In Exodus, Moses tells, <clears throat> tells the people, for or because, in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. But in Deuteronomy, Moses says, the reason they are to keep this commandment is so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Now, these aren't two contradictory Sabbath commands. They're two complementary Sabbath commands. On the one hand, Israel is to practice Sabbath as a way of helping them rest in the fact that God is their creator. And on the other hand, Sabbath is a practice to help Israel to rest in the fact that God is their saviour. Creation and salvation are the two things that define Sabbath. With creation in mind, Sabbath becomes a way of orientating the whole week and all of our material work to the fact that life is ultimately a gracious gift from God. In Genesis, everything that God created was good. Humanity's place in it was good. And everything about the physical life that God gave to Adam and Eve in that garden was pure gift. They had work to do, but it wasn't work that was necessary to keep themselves fed. Uh, if they needed a feed, there was a feed right there to be plucked from a tree. Instead, their work was to participate in in God's work, 
tending and ruling over the creation that he'd made. So Sabbath-keeping was meant to help Israel rest in the basic fact that all of life is God-gifted. So it becomes a day out of working for my living to take stock of the fact that not only did I not bring myself into existence, but my work is not the most necessary thing for sustaining my existence. As, as much as I need to work to earn my food, that isn't the most important thing about me as a human. And Jesus says much the same. When he quotes Deuteronomy, he says to the devil, man will not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Sabbath, as a creation day activity, tunes us into the basic purpose of being human. We're designed to get out of bed on a Monday morning and participate in God's creative activity in the world. On the other hand, Sabbath in ancient Israel was a way of orientating, orientating the whole week and all of material existence to the fact of God's gracious gift of salvation. Their very existence as a people, as a nation, was dependent on the fact that God redeemed them from slavery in Egypt. By his great deeds, God brought Israel to himself at Mount Sinai. By his graciousness, he revealed himself to them. He is the one that stepped out and made covenant to bring them into relationship with himself. And in fact, the very land of Canaan that he gave them was meant to be more than simply an economic breadbasket to help them live. It was to be the space in which Israel learned to live as God's people. And so the functional centre of the land of Israel was meant to be the tabernacle or the temple, not the stock market, if you can believe that. The purpose of the temple was to allow God to dwell amongst his people and to allow his people to come and worship and have fellowship with him. So Sabbath-keeping centred your identity then as a saved person, someone saved now on the basis of God's work and not your own work. And as a follow-on from that then, as a saved member of the community of Israel, you were to treat the members of your household, your family, your servants, slaves, employees, as saved people as well. Not simply as human resources to be exploited, but persons that had also been redeemed by God. Indeed, even your animals and your land were not there to be exploited, but to be treated as respect, with, uh, respect as gifts from God. In fact, elsewhere, God will tell the Israelites that the land itself is to be given Sabbath. So Sabbath-keeping, in a way, becomes the very glue of Jewish spirituality, it, in, both in theory and in practice. As the fourth commandment, Sabbath forms a bridge between worshipping God rightly in the first three commandments and treating your neighbour rightly in the following six commandments. It, Sabbath becomes a way of integrating everything that God has said and keeping life in proper perspective, which means not only what you do with your time, but what you do with your property, what you do with your relationships. So Sabbath observance is something that's meant to spill over into everyday life. 
Sabbath was the basis of a flourishing life in Israel because it helped give you the proper basis for living. Well, once you start looking at the biblical concept of Sabbath from this point of view, suddenly the Western concept of the weekend begins to look very anemic. Once again, biblical Sabbath involves leisure. It contains leisure, but leisure is not the ultimate goal, the ultimate good. God is the ultimate goal, the ultimate good. And so as a Sabbath day psalm, Psalm 92 is intended to anchor us again in that reality, in the reality of God's person, God's work, and the rest that he gives. God's person, God's work, and the rest that he gives. Let's, let's unpack those three. Well, the song begins and ends with the character of the Lord. We start in verse 2 by proclaiming God's unfailing love at the dawning of day and his faithfulness at the close of night. Now these two attributes, God's love and God's faithfulness, we'll find them everywhere through the Psalms. They're a constant refrain that becomes a way of, of summarising God's very person. They're a summary of the way that God revealed himself to Israel um, in, in, um, in Exodus. They are the very basis and rationale of everything that he does. And we'll then conclude the Psalm in verse 15 by proclaiming, God's uprightness, the fact that God is straight, he's true, he's reliable, you can bank on him, he, he's the yardstick of perfection, he's the plumb line of truth, he is rock-solid goodness, free from any accusation of evil. And then in the very centre of this psalm, verse 8 stands apart as a single line on its own, and it says this, you, O Lord, are forever exalted. Now the psalmist here is picking up the meaning of one of God's names that he used back in verse 2, which we heard last week, Elion, Most High. In other words, he's saying, You, O Lord, are forever up high. You are great. So the very layout of this psalm of praise sets our feet firmly on two realities. On the one hand, God is great, on the other hand, God is good. The Lord is ruling over all things. Not simply with power, because power, absolute power, uh, what's that saying, absolute power corrupts absolutely. God is not simply a tyrant, God is good. God does all things on the basis of love and faithfulness. But God's not just simply nice. He is great. Um, there's, no, there's no room here for any kind of wispy notion of all things nice and gentle, as if God's some kind of faraway fairy godmother who might turn up every now and again with a little miracle when we need a favour. God is great and God is good. Our praise here anchors us, us, anchors us in God's person. Well, the psalmist then goes on to celebrate the Lord's greatness and goodness in what he does. You make me glad by your deeds, Lord. I sing for joy at what your hands have done. How great are your works, Lord. Well, what are we looking at here? Your deeds, the work of your hands. Well, we're all the way back in creation. We're all the way back in salvation. God's work 
work to shape the world and fill it with life and bless it. We're looking at the outstretched arm and sorry, the mighty hand and outstretched arm that delivered his people from slavery. Sabbath worship sets our feet back on the bedrock of the Lord's work, his work. But it's at this point uh, an ominous note now creeps into our song of thanksgiving. The psalmist drops us into the everydayness of, of our Monday to Saturday struggles and reminds us that there are enemies at work, enemies at work in creation, enemies opposed to God's salvation. And most, perhaps the most perplexing part of this experience is the question, well, why should evil prosper? If God is great, if God is good, what are enemies doing in this picture? And why does it seem that they go on uninterrupted, that they're always succeeding, always flourishing? Well, like the other Psalms that deal with this topic, it's not actually explained to us. Instead, the Psalmist pauses to contrast the wicked with God. The Hebrew verb describing evil doing of the wicked in verses 7 and 9 stands in contrast to the Hebrew noun that describes the deeds of the Lord. Evil doesn't, we discover, evil doesn't have a free hand. It isn't absolute. God has taken account of it. And crucially, evildoers have no more substance than mere grass. And they last for a season before they wither and blow away. Now the wicked are also set in contrast to the righteous. That's us, by the way, in case you didn't miss in case you missed that. But the comparison's not direct. The wicked are defined by their deeds. They live and they die by what they do. But the righteous are not defined by their deeds. There's no sense here that the righteous are defined by their doing good. What we discover is we exist and go on existing because of God's deeds, his work. The psalmist proclaims, You have exalted my horn like that of a wild ox. Fine oils have been poured on me. God, who is most high, has reached down and lifted up his righteous people and lavished fine things on them. And so what we discover is where the wicked were pictured as kind of random grass seeds growing wherever they could while they could, the picture of the righteous we get here is very different. We're described as trees, solid, hand-planted trees, cultivated trees growing in a garden. We're described as flourishing, fruit-producing trees. And what we discover is God is a gardener, and it turns out we are the product of his good work. Now the picture here of trying to see a tree growing in the temple, of, of, of trees planted in the courts of the Lord, seems a little jarring until you remember that Solomon's temple was decorated uh, with garden images. It was meant to evoke Eden. And it was meant to evoke this very fact, that God is a gardener and that he plants people and he intends his people to flourish. So the act of Sabbath worship is designed to set our feet firmly in God's work. Well, God's person and God's work. What about rest on the Sabbath? Where does rest come into this? 
Because in the creation account, God rests on the seventh day. Now that's not because he happens to feel exhausted. Uh, And it's certainly not because he needs two days to refresh himself uh, and to sober up for Monday morning. God is at rest because his work is complete. God at rest is the image of a monarch seated on his throne. A monarch who has brought peace and security, justice and prosperity to his realm. That he is seated on his throne and at rest means he's no longer on a war footing. He's no longer out on a campaign trying to wrestle control from his enemies. A king at rest on his throne is a king in absolute charge. To be at rest is not the same thing as being retired. God is not retired. He's at rest. And he's not absent from his kingdom. Quite the opposite. He's ruling it absolutely. In his rest, the remainder, sorry, life in the kingdom then is going on as it ought to be going on. God at rest means that his work has produced all the conditions necessary for life to flourish in his kingdom. And so God's rest is a sign that everything is as it ought to be. And so you notice in our psalm, the righteous are flourishing, not because they are at work, but because God is at rest, because he has successfully done his work. The righteous are righteous because God has made them so, and they flourish because he has provided the conditions for them to grow. There's a word that sums up all of this. It's the word grace. The life of the righteous is all gift. It's not the product of our own work, our own effort, our own striving. It's all gift beyond our ability to earn it and beyond our ability to repay. And that's the nature of God's creation work and salvation work from the beginning. And any attempt to have life without receiving it from his hands as a gift is just rebellious. And it simply turns us into grass, not solid cedars or fruit-bearing palm trees. So the whole point of Sabbath worship is to keep our hearts tuned to grace, to stop us from imagining that we are a self-made and self-sustained people. So how then do we enter into this reality as 21st century Christians? What does it mean? For Christians to observe Sabbath? Does it mean we have to take Sunday off? Does it mean going to church? Does it mean Sunday should be a day of being busy about ministry? How is Sabbath different to merely time off on the weekend and simple leisure? Because the Apostle Paul was very ambivalent about the whole matter of Christians observing Sabbath. He said to the Colossians, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Just before the Matthew reading that we heard this morning, Jesus said to his disciples, 
Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew then records that Jesus goes on then to confront the Pharisees about the godlessness of their Sabbath day traditions. There are four different occasions where Jesus will heal someone on the Sabbath and on every occasion he will end up in furious confrontation with the Pharisees. As we heard this morning, it's the event that sends them out and starts them plotting to kill Jesus. Their dislike of him hardens into murderous hatred. And it's not that Jesus was trying to upset them. He was trying to demonstrate what Sabbath is really about. It's about shalom. It's about wholeness. It's about things being restored to the way they ought to be. And so by healing people, restoring their bodies to wholeness on the Sabbath, He's signalling what God's kingdom is finally concerned about, and that is life and flourishing. The Pharisees are shown up as absolute hypocrites because when it comes down to it, while they care about their religious traditions and practices, they couldn't care less about the people that Jesus healed on those days. Jesus proclaimed himself here Lord of the Sabbath. King, a king at rest. And remarkably, all four Gospels, all four of them, will record Jesus' female disciples going to his tomb early on the morning after the Sabbath day to find it empty and to hear that Jesus has risen. And what's the implication of that? That Jesus' resurrection is the ultimate Sabbath day. The resurrection of God that brings to completion the work of God the Father and enables the gift of the life-giving spirit. Jesus' resurrection, Jesus' ascension to the right hand of the Father is what Sabbath uh, was preparing Israel to receive because his resurrection is our restoration. His resurrection is our lifting up to life. He has elevated us in his coming out of the grave. And now we are planted in the courts of the Lord and are a people coming to bear fruit, all of grace, none of it our work. Jesus is our Sabbath. Whatever else we might or might not do by keeping a day of rest and by training ourselves in the reality of Sabbath, Jesus is the reality that we need to anchor our lives in. He is the rock our feet need to be planted on. It's his person, his work and his rest that we need and that we bear witness to. Let's pray. Lord, Psalm 23 reminds us that uh, you are our shepherd, that you lead us, that you bring us into green pastures, that you bring us into rest. Uh, Lord of salvation, we pause to praise you. We pray that you would teach us 
how to keep Sabbath in you. How to be a people that know how to rest in your work, your purpose, uh, your um, love for us, your person, in your achievement for us at the cross and at the tomb. Lord, let rest enter deeply into our hearts today. Let it define what we do as we get out of bed tomorrow. Um, Let it carry us along um, and direct us to you as this week goes by. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.